0: Clozapine was FDA-approved over 30 years ago. It is the only medication with proven benefit in treatment-resistant schizophrenia with additional FDA approval for the reduction of suicidality in patients with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. It has many off-label benefits, such as use in bipolar disorder, treatment-emergent tardive dyskinesia, and Parkinson's-related psychosis. However, major barriers in the United States continue to prevent the more widespread use of clozapine including the Clozapine REMS program. Pharmacist John Leung will discuss the need to remove barriers created by REMS and establish consistent practices throughout the U.S. to expand use of this life-saving medication.
1: As stated, today we'll be talking a little bit about Clozapine, focusing on the REMS program and some of the updates, um, but also how the historical barriers to Clozapine use and safety aspects have really impeded um, how we think about Clozapine, Um, and how some of the safety aspects really need to be further developed within the prescribing information to help promote the safe and effective use of this medication. With any clozapine talk, we end up focusing a lot about the safety risks of clozapine, Um, and if there's one that most people think about, it is the neutropenia. Um, But there's a lot of other safety risks associated with clozapine, so sometimes those benefits often get overshadowed. Um, So I want to start today by just really referencing and reinforcing why we use clozapine It is the only FDA-approved medication for treatment-resistant schizophrenia. It also has an FDA-approved indication for reducing suicidal behavior in schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. We also know the benefits of reducing suicidality also probably extend to other off-label indications, such as use in bipolar disorder. And it also has benefits in tardive dyskinesia, as well as a whole host of other off-label indications. I think one of the biggest things we also need to think about as we sort of stratify the risks and uh, side effects of clozapine is really that overall clozapine is associated with decreased all-cause mortality as compared to other antipsychotics. And so some of the smaller risks and side effects associated with clozapine that could be potentially fatal, we have to balance that with how does clozapine itself also improve mortality? Despite some of the benefits of clozapine that I've already mentioned, use remains low. This was a 2022 uh, publication that looked at Medicaid data and prescribing rates of clozapine across various states. This authors uh, redid this publication from a prior set of data that was published in the early 2000s, and really the trends of clozapine has not changed over time. As you can see, in the southeast of the United States, prescribing rates remain probably less than uh. and really don't extend above 10% anywhere in the United States. Experts in the field have really emphasized that clozapine prescribing rates should be at least 10%, and ideally they'd be 20%, knowing that about 30% of patients with schizophrenia have treatment-resistant illness, and so really there's a large population that would benefit from clozapine that aren't prescribed clozapine. We know from survey data of psychiatrists and trainees and others in the mental health profession that the Clozapine REMS program remains one of the largest barriers to continued and optimal use of Clozapine. But because of the REMS that's in place, obviously that is to help protect from the neutropenia. Um, There's evolving data that shows the risk may not be as significant. Um, But when we think about this, we have to look at Clozapine from a historical perspective to know how we got to where we are today as it relates to the REMS program. Clozapine actually has been around since the 1950s, and early studies in humans began in the 60s. Interestingly, clozapine is a medication that has very low risk of EPS and tardive dyskinesia. was actually sort of set aside as a medication that could be effective in schizophrenia because in the 70s, there was a notion that you need to actually have EPS to then have efficacy. So there was a correlation between developing EPS and the likelihood that a medication would be beneficial in psychosis, We now no longer think that, um, but in um, clozapine obviously has benefits um, that we've learned over time. As psychiatrists in Europe started to use this medication, um, it started to expand throughout the the continent. um, And then phase two studies started in the United States somewhere in the mid-1970s. That led us to 1975 with some of the first initial Um, reports of agranulocytosis or severe neutropenia associated with clozapine in which 18 cases were reported and nine of them were fatal. This led to the withdrawal of clozapine from most European markets as well as halting of clozapine phase two trials. Now those that were already enrolled in those studies could continue clozapine under a compassionate use program and that program slowly started to expand. Psychiatrists were recognizing that this medication was very effective and so they would say, well, you know, if these patients are already enrolled in this compassionate use program, could we expand use further uh, for certain patients? And so, use in the United States, although it wasn't um, moving towards FDA approval, actually um, the use of clozapine was expanding. At some point, psychiatrists just said, hey, we're using enough of this. Um, how do we get this medication to market? And so the FDA said, if you could uh, develop studies that showed that. Um, In a population where the benefits outweighed the risks, we would consider bringing this medication to market. And so uh, they decided to study this in treatment-resistant populations, and there were two ongoing studies. The first study that was completed by John Kane and colleagues in 1989 um, was so successful that the FDA said, you don't need to finish your second study. Um, We'll use this as data to move this through with approval. But with approval came the monitoring parameters. And so when clozapine first came to market, it actually required weekly monitoring, and the drug company was affiliated with a lab and a pharmacy that had a closed system where they would then distribute to the patient. um, Through some antitrust laws, this loosened to be more independent, and so clozapine uh, was more related to the prescriber uh, ordering the labs and then following up. We know that the general incidence of neutropenia um, was estimated to be about 1.3% over the first year, based on early information um, from those early clinical studies. Um, More recent data, um, this one from a meta-analysis in 2018, um, showed that the risk of any neutropenia was about 4%, um, but that being severe was about what current estimates had shown, about 1%. What we do know about neutropenia, though, is that the risk is most um, is greatest in the early weeks of treatment. The peak is around one month, with the greatest time period being within the first 18 weeks. And after that, the risk of neutropenia decreases exponentially to where it's been described that the risk of neutropenia after a year is similar to other first-generation antipsychotics. And so a lot of experts in the field have called for or question why we need ongoing, continuous ANC monitoring, at least at the rigor um, that we currently have, which in the United States is monthly. Um, Based on this information, um, the Netherlands Clozapine Collaboration Group developed a set of guidelines in which they recognize um, that the risk is low after a year of clozapine exposure. And in their opinion, they state that hematologic monitoring for certain individuals who have not had a history of neutropenia um, who can reliably follow up, um, can uh, be educated about the risks of um, or signs and symptoms of infection, that hematologic monitoring actually can be stopped. They recommend low-frequency monitoring, such as quarterly, um, but really say that that can be at the guidance of the clinician as opposed to being a structured, rigorous program uh, that demands monitoring before a pain can be dispensed. So in the United States, we all know that the uh, frequency of the hematologic monitoring is weekly for the first six months. It can progress to every other week for months six through twelve, and then at four weeks, it, can, it is monthly for the duration of clozapine treatment. This varies throughout other countries. So in Europe, they recognize that that highest risk time is within the first 18 weeks. so that's their weekly monitoring time frame before being able to progress to a monthly um, indefinite monitoring frequency. On the other side, countries like Japan um, have very rigorous monitoring. So in this country, they require inpatient admissions and uh, hematologic monitoring for 18 weeks. So that represents probably uh, the most stringent in the world. Um, But then there's some countries like India that have no specific regulatory oversight or a specific monitoring program. And the hematologic monitoring is left to um, the prescribers themselves. So with that, we'll move to a case. Um, A 34-year-old female is prescribed clozapine for schizophrenia. She's on an every-28-day monitoring frequency, so she's been on clozapine for over a year. Um, She's never had neutropenia throughout her treatment, and she arrives to the pharmacy to refill her clozapine. The pharmacist sees that the ANC was entered into the REMS program website 29 days ago, and she reports that she's unable to get transportation to the lab until the following week. She's going to run out of clozapine the next day. Um, and has missed no doses. So which of the following is true in this scenario? Uh, The patient is unable to get blood today based on the clozapine um, trademarked phrase, no blood, no drug. If the patient uh, status form, which is a form that the prescribers update online to indicate that they're monitoring ongoing, if that's up to date, uh, then the full 28 days of clozapine can be dispensed. Only a one-time prescription can be dispensed uh, based on the pharmacist's discretion until the patient can get to the lab or none of the above. The most correct answer probably here would be B. Uh, So the patient status form needs to be updated every 37 days. And so if that has been updated within that timeframe, the patient shouldn't have any issues obtaining clozapine. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic, due to issues with the current REMS and the FDA putting a pause on some of the parameters, there's a lot of confusion um, with uh, the processes of REMS. Um, pharmacists, the community uh, uh, pharmacies uh, may have confusion or not aware of some of the variants that's allowed. Um, and there may be confusion on the prescriber side of what's um, permissible. Um, it could be, and I've seen this in practice, that a pharmacy does not want to um, let a patient go without clozapine. So at the, their, their discretion, they they could give a seven-day supply, um, but the most correct answer here is probably B. Um, if there is any answer that is not true, it would be the no blood, uh, no drug response, which up until 2015 was the trademarked phrase of the clozapine REMS program. Um, They went so far as to trademark this. I'm not sure who would steal this phrase, um, but they did. Um, But this phrase has been around since the inception of the REMS processes in 1989. Um, And I think this phrase, for what it's worth, has done a lot of damage um, in that... It's really ingrained in the mind of people using clozapine, prescribing, dispensing, um, because there's this connection that you have to have a lab result in order to dispense clozapine. In the case that we just showed, there's an exception. So between days 28, when a lab would be due, and today 37, there's some flexibility in that. Um, there's also um, ways within the REMS program to say intrinsic factor, extrinsic factors have delayed a patient in getting a lab or that a patient could refuse for that particular um, lab draw. So there is some variance allowed, um, despite this having been historically a trademarked phrase. Um, so keep that in mind, despite this being um, historically um, throughout the literature and notable that there are exceptions and flexibility to the REMS program. Um, bottom line is, I think, you know, we all want what's best for the patient. And so we need to think about what are the parameters in which a patient couldn't get to the lab? Is it because they hadn't been there for three months and they haven't been on clozapine for that duration? You know, then a patient probably shouldn't be getting clozapine, um, but following up with their prescriber, or have they been on it continuously with no breaks in therapy, and we really want to try to prevent rehospitalization um, or other serious consequences, abruptly stopping clozapine um you may all be aware of the recent updates to the rems program that occurred in 2021 um the rems program officially transitioned from uh the manufacturer controlling the registry over to a, a centralized process that was more had more oversight by the fda that website from 2015 to about this 2021 time uh was under a vendor they switched vendors Uh, So a different company essentially was running the website, but because they were switching vendors, patients, prescribers, and pharmacies all had to re-enroll. So if you did not meet the deadline of November 15th, 2021, when REMS relaunched, um, there was a potential that patients weren't going to be able to get their clozapine. In the United States, right around November, there's holidays approaching, Um, And so, you know, that was foreseen by major organizations, including the American Psychiatric Society, NAMI, uh, pharmacy psychiatric organizations. And actually, prior to the launch of the REMS program, they formed a letter and submitted this to the FDA, uh, tried to hold meetings, voice their concern to say, pause this for a moment, knowing that everybody involved with REMS, all stakeholders, would need to get re-registered. Um, The FDA still went forward with launching REMS, and four days later, uh, FDA said, we'll put some variants on the REMS program because the launch was essentially uh, a disaster. Um, I remember being on hold for six hours trying to get through to register a patient um, because their pharmacy said they weren't in the system and they wouldn't dispense clozapine. So um, we had to work to find a different pharmacy that would dispense clozapine, knowing that there were barriers currently in place. And so um, with that, Um, there are still provisions that the FDA is upholding to suspend, um, elements of the REMS program, including the dispense authorization, which a pharmacy needs to dispense clozapine technically, but they said that if a pharmacy can't generate that code, uh, they should still do what's best for the patient and dispense clozapine. Um, so as you can imagine, um, we were, for the patient I had just mentioned, um, where I was on hold for six hours, we were able to get them clozapine, Um, but harms were reported um, in the FDA notes on their website that they were aware of situations where patients have had lack of access to clozapine, unable to find pharmacies that have registered. Um, And this is one report that was published in ISMP of a 40-year-old woman who was on clozapine for 10 years. Uh, Her prescriber was having difficulties registering with the REMS program, Um, And the patient went two weeks without clozapine and subsequently was hospitalized. Um, Unfortunately, in that report, uh, that patient also then was restarted on probably a higher dose um, than what should have been having been off of clozapine for two weeks, um, resulting in cardiac arrest and anoxic brain injury. And so while the harm of the the restarting of clozapine uh, wasn't specific to REMS, it definitely was related to the downstream effect of not being able to access clozapine despite having been on that for 10 years. Um, So where do we stand now with REMS? I said I'll be trying to provide somewhat of an update, um, and I don't have much to update other than uh, the stakeholders are still working with the FDA uh, to overcome some of the barriers that currently exist with the clozapine REMS program. Um, The stakeholders, as well as the centralized manufacturing group, so this is all uh, companies who uh, manufacture clozapine. They're part of this group called the clozapine uh, product manufacturers group. Um, So along with the APA, NAMI, and the psychiatric pharmacy organization, uh, they met with uh, recently with the FDA in February of this year, noting that in the last year, there'd been little changes or improvements to the REMS program. There are still ongoing uh, disruptions uh, resulting in hospitalizations, um, worsening clozapine underutilization. Um, So if you can imagine that um, if there's barriers to actually registering, maybe prescribers and pharmacies aren't doing so um, because of the administrative barriers associated with the REMS program. Um, and that coupled with the already underutilization of clozapine, you can imagine um, it's not in the direction that we want to be heading as a profession and use of clozapine. Um, the other thing is finding uh, finding pharmacies. Um, you know, this is uh, something that sort of piqued my interest a few years ago, um, moving into the pandemic. Um, And and figuring out what pharmacies would be a little bit more flexible if patients couldn't get to labs because they were in quarantine. Um, And there's about 25 to 30% of pharmacies in Rochester aren't registered with the REMS program. Um, And there have been patients that we start on clozapine um whether on the inpatient or outpatient side where their usual pharmacy they aren't registered and they don't dispense clozapine which means we have to transfer all prescriptions maybe that pharmacy is close to where they live and you can see how that can create some disruptions for the patient or maybe even coming off of clozapine which is a life-saving medication um the the stakeholders uh, that i mentioned um, they essentially asked that rems be eliminated Um, i think uh, just based on Um, Some of the risks associated, I don't foresee that necessarily happening. Um, They suggested maybe an educational REMS program. So instead of a REMS with E-T-A-S-U, which are elements to assure safe use. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is a REMS program with added layers. So with clozapine, that's the lab monitoring. Um, It's uh, possible that that might be a a way that's moved or uh, maybe monitoring up front for the highest time frame. Um, I think realistically, I could foresee maybe loosening the um, length of weekly labs, maybe to 18 weeks, and then moving to monthly. Um, So I'm not sure what the FDA is going to ultimately do. They say that the program itself is under review. Um, They're likely working with the CPMG to look at their data um, to evaluate the risk of neutropenia probably after a one-year time frame. So uh, more to come with that, Um, but recognizing that REMS remains ultimately a barrier Um, in many facets from the pharmacy, the prescriber uh, side of things that obviously need improved. And so we talked a little bit about neutropenia. I'm going to shift gears and actually move away from REMS, um, but I've sort of set the stage of neutropenia being so rigorously thought of and monitored um, that it's overshadowed some of the other um, significant uh, side effects and evolving literature related to clozapine. Um, And so we'll talk a little bit about how um, the package insert um, might be updated to become more modernized based on evolving literature. Um, And that involves uh, clozapine as it relates to inflammatory processes and CRP monitoring, the risk of pneumonia, and how genetic ancestry can influence um, adverse drug reactions um, and dose requirements even. Um, That said, um, I certainly could probably talk A few more hours about other significant side effects of clozapine, um, but we don't have that time. But we'll uh, certainly mention um, that myocarditis, cardiomyopathy um, is a boxed warning. Um, The risk of severe uh, gastrointestinal hypomotility has been strengthened within the package insert in the last few years. Um, So, clozapine, we recognize as slowing gut motility. Um, If constipation isn't managed, this can develop to ileus, obstruction, perforation. Um, So, it's definitely something that we monitor uh, rigorously. And then to mention uh, one more boxed warning related to clozapine that's related to seizures, which is a dose and concentration-related effect. Um, And so, we will be focusing on inflammation, pneumonia, and personalizing titrations. Um, which was highlighted in a recent international guideline uh, by DeLeon. Um, this was published in early 2022, um, and this guideline focuses on how we can personalize clozapine titration and use um, to minimize side effects, um, focusing on titration rate, inflammatory reactions, um, and use of therapeutic drug monitoring. Uh, so this will bring us to another case. Um, this is a 41-year-old, non-smoking, non-obese, white a woman who had a history of bipolar disorder um, and several past psychiatric hospitalizations. She came to the emergency department with manic symptoms. Um, she had failed multiple medications and had a medical history of hypothyroidism, our TSH, TSH was normal, and a history of tardive dyskinesia. On an inpatient side, clozapine was started at 25 milligrams, which is a typical starting dose, increased by 25 milligrams every day. Again, a typical titration rate. Um, to a total dose of 200 milligrams at bedtime. So reaching this by about day eight. Um, At that point, she was discharged and uh, we actually saw her in Clozapine clinic um, after three days and on 200 milligrams um, for a few days, she had worsening sialorrhea. She had difficulty staying awake. She had significant dizziness um, and reported uh, having multiple near falls. Um, We ended up empirically reducing the dose and checking a clozapine level along with the CRP. Again, keeping in mind this was early after titration, so this would have been about two weeks after initiation, Um, and the clozapine level was about 1,600. Uh, So for reference, the usual therapeutic minimum is a level of 350. Um, There's no well-accepted upper limit. um, For the sake of this, we'll just say around 600. Um, So with 200 milligrams we might expect somebody to have a level between 200 and 300 and so essentially saying that this this level was significantly elevated Um, we also because of how high this level was uh, we had the lab rerun it and it was um accurate so bringing us to the next question uh, which of the following might might best explain the elevated clozapine level Uh, too high of a target dose um for a woman Um, detected an undetected interaction such as caffeine, um, or maybe antibiotic use recently, um, inflammatory effects secondary to clozapine or a titration rate beyond what is typically recommended. So just to kind of run through these and women, we do know that um, there is lower metabolism of clozapine. Uh, They typically would require about 20 to 30% lower um, clozapine doses compared to men. Um, interactions during the clinic visit, we screened for all this. No caffeine intake, no recent 1A2 uh, inhibitors like ciprofloxacin. Um, she was just in the hospital, not smoking. She didn't start smoking and stop smoking, so that went, was an issue. Um, and um, inflammatory effects based on the crp is ultimately what we ended up thinking about uh, for this patient um, as being the cause of the elevated clozapine level the titration rate um, of 25 milligrams per day for an inpatient actually is typically um, what is commonly employed Um, so this brings us to the concept of clozapine itself being a pro-inflammatory molecule Um, It's not well understood, um, but we do know that this occurs early after exposure. So inflammation um, in various in vitro and in vivo studies have shown that clozapine may impact um, uh, inflammatory markers, increasing uh, those such as IL-6 and TNF-alpha. This impact may be greater in women. um, And we know that, again, this pro-inflammatory effect of clozapine is really seen early in exposure. Um, And actually, over chronic exposure to clozapine, uh, these markers can return to baseline. Um, This is an important concept because clozapine, as a pro-inflammatory molecule, um, can often then be thought of as an auto-inhibitor, in, in speaking. Um, essentially, inflammation, we know, also decreases cytochrome P450 function. Um, specifically, 1A2 is thought to be um, one of the cytochrome P450s that's significantly affected, and this is the primary route of metabolism for clozapine Um, So what we know is that inflammatory processes or acute infection, uh, we can see acute rises in clozapine level, and we've seen this on the medical side for patients admitted for uh, various types of infection, Um, and we've even seen that uh, in uh, surgical patients as well. Um, There's some interesting studies that validate this effect. Um, So um, these two studies were both done by Lenore and colleagues. Um, These are two separate studies where they looked at patients getting um, a hip replacement and those that had uh, COVID-19 infections. They essentially used metabolic probes to look at uh, before and after the inflammatory event, um, metabolic processing of those probes. So for 1A2, for example, that would be caffeine and its metabolites. And essentially, what they showed that during these inflammatory processes of the hip replacement and the infection, that uh, 1A2 metabolic rate decreased by about 50%. uh, 2C19 and 3A4 were also. Uh, significantly impacted, um, which is relevant because clozapine is also partially metabolized by 2C19 and 3A4. And this also correlated with inflammatory markers that they obtained, um, CRP, IL-6, and TNF-alpha. So keeping in mind that clozapine can cause inflammation, the inflammation can reduce metabolism, thinking about the case we just reviewed, um, that led us to believe that was sort of the process that was going on uh, with that individual. So to kind of think about this in a uh, more diagrammatic fashion, uh, we initiate clozapine. Clozapine is associated with macrophage lymphocyte activation. This causes an increase of inflammatory markers, resulting in a decrease of cytochrome P450 function, resulting then in clozapine levels increasing, then toxicity, hypersensitivity, um, and other things potentially like myocarditis, um, hepatitis and various other inflammatory states. If this inflammation is not detected um, and clozapine is further increased, you may further precipitate inflammatory processes, worsening this cycle as a positive feedback loop. What we don't necessarily know is that Although clozapine levels can increase, it doesn't always correlate clinically with signs and symptoms of toxicity. Um, So there's been some thought that although clozapine may increase inflammatory markers, um, along with CRP, um, TNF-alpha, and IL-6 and other markers, Also acute, the acute phase uh, reactant, alpha-1 acid glycoprotein also increases, um, which is a molecule that binds to medications like antipsychotics and antidepressants. Um, And so while clozapine levels may increase um, because of this process, um, alpha-1 acid glycoprotein binds the clozapine. um, So you don't necessarily have a proportionate rise in your free level, although the total level is increasing. There's not a lot of literature on this. There's a few case reports, um, and this is something that we're actually looking at here um, by getting alpha-1 acid glycoprotein levels. Um, So hopefully we'll have some more information um, to explore about how to potentially um, maybe adjust dose or look into uh, things like that. Um, Essentially, um, inflammation with clozapine is nonspecific. Um, When clozapine first came to market, fever uh, was noted to be a very common Um, isolated um, but self-limiting and benign side effect that typically resolves, Um, but you can see other things like an isolated eosinophilia, um, other things um, that that can be subsequent to that, so sedation if you have increasing levels potentially from an inflammatory process that's self-limiting, but the real issue is that these may develop and become more severe um, states, so things like myocarditis um, also affecting other organs, um, there's a lot of different inflammatory side effects associated with clozapine, and so um, essentially just to say that while um, monitoring for inflammation, yes, we might be able to minimize the dose um, or recognize it, um, there still may be some additional workup that's needed because of the whole host of things that clozapine has been associated with, um, and we won't have time to get into all of that. Um, so to kind of jump back to the guideline I initially mentioned, Um, Because of the recognition that clozapine is a pro-inflammatory molecule, and we're trying to prevent that inflammation or at least recognize it to not further increase clozapine early on to maybe worsening that um, loop that we talked about, Um, they recommend monitoring CRP with clozapine initiation at baseline and then weekly for at least the first four weeks. Um, Some other guidelines that are specific to myocarditis um, recommend CRP monitoring for at least the first eight weeks along with troponin monitoring. This guideline being an international guideline recognizes that some countries may not have access to that, and so they didn't want to impose this as a strong recommendation um, if providers may think or prescribers may think that um, you would have to get this to start clozapine. So ultimately thinking we don't want to create more barriers for clozapine, we just want to try to improve its safety, Um, and CRP is relatively um, not, not an expensive lab. Um, Again, so um, thinking about if we are detecting uh, inflammation within the first four to eight weeks, um, that we should really be thinking about pausing clozapine or at least not furthering to increase it. Um, Obviously, if there's, you know, things like myocarditis um, or more nefarious side effects that are suspected, we might even stop clozapine at that point. Um, Another case, a 31-year-old non-smoking, non-obese Asian man uh, with schizophrenia was started on clozapine, um, and this was added to a current regimen involving paliperidone palmitate, which is a long-acting injectable form of paliperidone. Um, This individual started on 25 milligrams per day, titrated to 200 milligrams, um, increasing by about 25 milligrams every day. Constipation and sialuria developed, but that was managed pharmacologically, um, and they were mild. On day 14, the patient developed a fever, tachycardia, hypotension, and altered mental status. He was transferred to a medical unit and found to have pneumonia. Um, again, based on about a, a dose of 200 milligrams, we would, we would say that the clozapine level here of about 800 was higher than expected. Um, and with this at that time, there was an elevated CRP as well. So, um, thinking about pneumonia and clozapine um, and that association, uh, which factors or factor factors may have contributed to the development of pneumonia for this patient? Everyone's favorite, all of the above. Um, Yeah. So essentially, there's a lot of different risk factors that might be associated with clozapine and pneumonia. Um, One that uh, the guideline specifically mentions um, is involving those of Asian ancestry and how metabolism might differ um, in that population, and we'll talk about that. Um, But the first talk about pneumonia, um, you know, the guideline also highlights that rapid titration can contribute, again, to acute inflammatory processes, inhibition of um, cytochrome P450. Um, Again, this may result in elevated clozapine levels, leading to worsening sialurea sedation and potentially swallowing disturbances, all contributing to the potential risk of pneumonia in early exposure. Um, There's some other theories of why this may happen. Um, These are just some um, that might be uh, associated with early pneumonia. The other thing we need to think about, um, because the guideline really just focuses on pneumonia developing early with exposure, is that pneumonia can be seen um, at any point during clozapine treatment. there's literature showing that uh, recurrent pneumonia is also highly common, um, and there's a few newer studies showing that chronic clozapine exposure is associated with hypogamma globulinemia, um, and so patients on chronic clozapine exposure, despite not having neutropenia, might be at increased risk of developing um, infections. Um, there was a recent case series um, of patients on clozapine referred to an immunology clinic, um, that showed that with discontinuation of clozapine, uh, the hypogamma globulinemia uh, reversed. Um, five patients needed prophylactic antibiotics and seven needed IVIG. Um, so for what that's worth, there's uh, just a small amount of evidence, but you're starting to see reference to this um, in some of the larger cohort retrospective type studies looking at associations of clozapine and pneumonia, um, which um, I, I dwell on this because, um, it's coming to light that pneumonia might be the adverse event that is associated with the greatest mortality, um, with clozapine, uh, more so than myocarditis, more so than neutropenia. Um, and based on this one publication, um, that looked at Vigibase, which is the, um, uh, database that the World Health Organization, World Health Organization has related to medication adverse events, similar to Ferris and the FDA's database, um, This publication uh, highlighted that um, pneumonia and clozapine association, um, there's the high fatality rate associated with that. Um, There's limitations to these type of studies, but I think it's something that uh, we need to be thinking about in terms of improving the safety of clozapine for patients on the medication. Um, Prior to this, there had been several retrospective studies. Um, Again, highlighting the risk of either pneumonia related hospitalizations or increased risk of pneumonia, uh, more so than other antipsychotics. And so um, you can see the the odds ratios here listed um, 2 and 3 fold higher risk um, as compared to um, uh, the reference antipsychotic that they're looking at in that study. The other thing that I didn't show here is that antipsychotic polypharmacy involving clozapine um, also increases that risk of pneumonia. Um, And so when we're thinking about clozapine um, and partial response, we often then think about maybe a second antipsychotic. And so uh, we need to think about the risk that might be compounded when having clozapine plus another antipsychotic. Um, So again, related to pneumonia um, that's referenced within the guideline, um, it really talks more about the Uh, early onset pneumonia, but we need to be thinking probably more about also the development of pneumonia in later term clozapine use. Um, There's really a lack of studies of knowing what to do um, when patients develop pneumonia, and I think this is where the research needs to develop. Um, There's a lot of studies showing that yes, the association exists. Yes, the association is greater than other antipsychotics, Um, but how do we prevent this from being recurrent? Um, or leading to clozapine toxicity um, and and other negative uh, adverse events associated with uh, the pneumonia. Um, Some theoretical suggestions, maybe more aggressively treating sialuria, often we'll say, you know, is the sialuria bothersome? Um, If it's not, we may not add a medication, or patients may not want additional medication to treat a side effect. Uh, Minimizing sedation, um, assessing aspiration risks, and maybe there'll be some developing uh, research on the association between clozapine and hypogamma globulinemia. Um, The second component of the case that we reviewed um, was related to the fact that that patient um, was of Asian ancestry. Um, And probably since the 1970s, when TCAs came to market, there was early recognition that um, those of European ancestry as compared to those with Asian ancestry had different response to TCA medications. It was recognized that uh, those with Asian ancestry were more likely to have side effects, uh, required lower doses for therapeutic outcomes, Um, and this sort of... uh, then brought to light this concept that's sprinkled throughout the literature of ethno-psychopharmacology, which brings together how medication outcomes are as it relates to biologic and non-biologic factors. while those studies exist they're fairly limited um, they often are just pharmacokinetic studies and don't specifically look at outcomes um, and then when we think about how medications came to market in the united states a lot of those studies involve um, are either here in the united states um, or european markets um, so um, the populations involved aren't necessarily diverse to know that there might be a signal of uh, ethnicity or uh, ancestry differences Um, The two landmark studies that brought the FDA indications to clozapine, so um, the Kane study that brought clozapine to market, and then Meltzer was the study that gave clozapine the FDA-approved indication of reducing suicidality. Um, You can see that um, less than 1% or about 1% of patients uh, were reported as being Asian. Um, Ultimately, the guideline sort of recognizes that there are ethnicity or ancestry differences. um, And so they recommend different titration rates for those of Asian ancestry, recognizing there may be decreased clozapine metabolism um, based on some extrapolated information uh, from olanzapine, which has similar metabolic uh, metabolism through 1A2. Um, They propose that Black or African-American patients may actually have increased metabolism of clozapine and potentially need higher doses. Um, There's been some recent studies actually uh, corroborating this, so I'll review those here at the end shortly. Those were just published within the last month. Um, We do know that, again, mentioning that women have decreased clozapine metabolism, and then that guideline also um, references a few cases that suggest that obesity might contribute to elevated clozapine levels as well, recognizing that clozapine is lipophilic, um, so it might accumulate, but also obesity is associated with inflammation, which may decrease uh, metabolism. And of course, um, interactions that influence clozapine. Um, this is a table from the supplement of the uh, that international guideline Um, I won't go through this all extensively, but really just noting they tried to break different populations down, describing them as either either having lower metabolism, so whether that due to a drug interaction or average, so lack of drug interaction, Um, and then they went through what uh, or proposed starting doses, weekly maximum doses at weeks one, two, three, and then what a target dose um, should be by the fourth week, Um, and you can see that for the most conservative So an Asian or Native American with, you know, drug interaction or decreased metabolism, that starting dose might be 6.25 milligrams, reaching maybe 75 to 150 milligrams by the end of the fourth week. Um, This does seem very slow and low. um, And I think more data is needed to confirm, um, you know, this, these proposed titrations. but I think it at least adds um, to our body of knowledge that we should be thinking about different titration rates in some different and specific populations. Um, um, these are just some studies that um, I'll highlight that do show differences, so those of European ancestry versus Asian ancestry. Um, again, these were this was just a small PK study looking at the average dose. Um, So you can see in in this study, they describe demographics as white or Asian. Um, So in white patients, the total dose of, or mean dose of about 450 milligrams or 175 milligrams in Asian patients. And while the the dosing there is about a twofold difference, their clozapine levels were essentially about the same. Um, So again, recognizing that you might need a lower uh, dose to achieve um, uh, a therapeutic level. Uh, This is a study that did not look at clozapine specifically, but used uh, caffeine as a 1A2 metabolic probe. Uh, This looked at populations from Korea and Sweden, um, and again, just illustrating the fact that um, those uh, Korean patients had slower uh, 1A2 activity based on uh, findings of that caffeine probe. Um, And again, clozapine is highly metabolized by 1A2, um, so here we would suspect, um, or more evidence supporting the fact that uh, those of Asian ancestry may need lower clozapine levels. In Black or African American patients, I mentioned the guideline uh, notes an extrapolation of a Lanspine data. I'll just highlight that here quickly um this was from uh two other studies where they had serum levels of olanzapine and essentially found that those um that identified as black or african american had a 26% faster clearance of olanzapine um they also noted that women had uh slower olanzapine clearance um and so there, uh this is where they extrapolated that data from for the clozapine guideline um just for the sake of time i'll sort of review um these two studies that really have uh or that have been more recent so these were published within the last month um, these were again just kind of pharmacokinetic studies they this group had a large database of clozapine levels um, they had genomic data with that and they were able to um, classify um, groups of european sub-saharan african north african um, southwest asian and east asian um, ultimately looking at metabolism of clozapine and predicting what dose Um, would correlate to a level of 350, which would be our therapeutic level to attempt to achieve. Um, And they noticed that those of sub-Saharan African ancestry had increased clozapine metabolism. So again, supporting uh, the notion that um, in this group, they may need higher clozapine dosing. Um, And then again, those of East Asian or Southwest Asian ancestry had decreased clozapine metabolism. Two other studies, um, again, database studies involving clozapine levels. Um, Again, I'll just kind of uh, reference the the general trend here um, in these populations where they classified um, either Afro-Caribbean or Asian um, or um, European ancestry. Um, Again, general trends here, you can see um, those that they classified as Afro-Caribbean required higher clozapine doses as compared to those of Asian ancestry. The issue with this study is that they didn't control for timing of the lab, interactions, or adherence. Uh, so that same group tried to do a reanalysis on this data set, accounting for the dosage form, when the dose was taken, the timing of the lab, age, and weight. And again, uh, similar trends of uh, needing lower doses um, for those of Asian ancestry as compared to uh, white or Afro-Caribbean populations. So in conclusion, uh, we came uh, a long way initially talking about clozapine REMS and some of the barriers that it involves. Um, Organizations are advocating for change, but we can also do this uh, in our clinical practice um, by um, recognizing when clozapine should be used and making sure that clozapine's continued where possible. Um, it may be that REMS changes over time, but we'll have to see how the FDA interprets maybe either emerging data um, or after discussions with the stakeholders. Uh, more research is needed to know how um, inflammatory processes and pneumonia um, evolve in ways that we can better prevent or predict those in order to mitigate adverse events associated with those. And again, I think um, the the guideline while Um, extrapolating data from a smaller, um, smaller type of studies, I think really is paving the way for people and other researchers to look into the influence of genetic ancestry. Um, And certainly, um, this may exist not just in the realm of clozapine, but certainly has broader application um, in other areas of psychiatry as well.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.